Um, I will tell you, this word has been cutting me, this word has been in me, and I look forward to preaching it with us together. Uh, I'm I'm with you on this one. All right, so let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this day. We sing hallelujah, hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome. Thank you so much for that reality, God. We ask that you will be with us as we hear your word preached. Uh, May we not only hear your word, but be doers of it as well. Empower us by your spirit to do that. Thank you so much for Jesus. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, words matter. Words matter. Uh, Now, I may lose you some of you on this particular analogy, but try to stick in there with me, okay, on uh, on this particular story. On November 7th, 2017, Twitter, raise your hand if you've never heard that word before. I know my dad probably, he doesn't want, he will raise his hand. Twitter, all right, so I, okay, so you're with me. Twitter's expansion to 280 characters rolled out publicly to all its users in supported languages. The company had first announced the controversial move to move beyond its 140 characters uh, to 280 characters back in September 2017. Now, there was a bit of controversy behind it because many people thought, okay, the expansion to more words would, would express more thought. People could express more of their thoughts in it. Many argued that the increase to 280 characters would make Twitter less readable. As long as Twitter uh, filled their timelines and people would say, okay, they argued, does it really mean that people uh, will be able to express themselves? Because they really could just be saying more words but not really saying anything at all. One particular funny tweet uh, on that subject even went viral. A red line and edited version of Twitter CEO's Jack Dorsey's 280-character tweet demonstrated how it was possible to shrink the tweeted words, tweet, shrink the tweeted word count without losing its meaning. And I want to show you it right up there. Take a look. Jack Dorsey, he's the, the CEO. 280 words, and he said very clearly we could shrink it down. Look at the words that aren't crossed out. Small change. Big move, 140 were arbitrarily based on SMS limits, proud of the team, solving a real problem, maintaining our essence. Now again, a lot of words up there and how easily it is to just cross some out and get to the essence, the core of what is being said. I thought about this. If King Jesus was on Twitter today, he would hands down be one, give some of the best tweets, right? Because his tweets would be tweeted with a per- precise, authoritative tone. I often see, how many people have Twitter by a show of hands? Okay, all right. For me, I often see Proverbs or Psalms or inspirational biblical tweets that come across my Twitter feed. And it's, it's funny because I recently noticed that the Beatitudes started popping up on my Twitter account. The Beatitudes King Jesus spoke were brief as we just heard in the text. He, he would not have needed all 280 characters in order to get his message across. The Beatitudes were brief but potent statements that describe what it means to be right with God. These verses, the verses that were read today, 
are 213 characters long. I, I counted them. Um, uh, describing what it means to be righteous rather than religious. All of King Jesus' words point to mankind's need to be blessed by God. In a sense, a clear understanding of the Beatitudes, what was just read for us, is a life-transforming introduction to practical implications of Christian salvation, growth, and service. So just to give a recap for those who are new with us, we're going through the Beatitudes. We're actually going through the Sermon on on the Mount. And last week, Tim preached the first three verses from the Sermon on the Mount given by King Jesus. Uh, This sermon was given to a Jewish audience who was following King Jesus. Actually, let's go in the text. Go to, if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 4, verse 25. It says, this is where the people were following Jesus from. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Diocopus and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The crowds, they were astonished by Jesus by King Jesus. They spoke, they were speaking about this authority that he was speaking from. They were astonished by his teachings as well. If you go to the end of his sermon in uh, chapter 7, verse 29, it says he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the other scribes. Now, you remember, and it was mentioned during our worship time, Moses, when he spoke to the people of Israel, after he came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he told the people what God had communicated to him to tell them. During the Sermon on the Mount, we have King Jesus sitting down and seeing the crowds. He opened his mouth and taught them. Notice the difference. Moses told the people what the Lord required. King Jesus told the people he is the Lord. Now, could you imagine standing during a sermon? Yeah, because culturally, that's what they did, right? Culturally, the people would stand uh, at these type of talks, the rabbi or, or the teacher, they would actually sit. Now, I, I don't know, Arnaldo, maybe we should try that one Sunday, right? Maybe we should try everyone standing, Tim or whoever's up here sitting, right? That'll probably help from help with all the people sleeping, even right now. Um, uh, the people won't sleep, right, during a sermon because they're standing up. Now, it's interesting, if you could just imagine in this text, if you could imagine hearing the words of King Jesus coming straight from his mouth. God is so good to us. He's so good to us because we have King Jesus' words right in our text, right in the Word of God, right for us. From Matthew 5 to 7, we have his words. And I I would encourage you over these next couple weeks to read the entirety of his sermon, chapter 5 through 7. Read through it, start to finish. I know for me, I've read it a couple times, several times, in fact, in preparation, and it would cut me and it would heal me. And then it would cut me some more and it would heal me some more. And then ultimately, what it did, the beauty of it what, it, what the sermon did is it points to the sovereign grace and mercy given by King Jesus. So let's do this. Let's, let's pick up in verse 6. If you have your Bible, as, as was mentioned, verse four, uh, uh, page 4, your tablet, click right on it. Let's uh, pick up in verse 6 of chapter 5, which I believe is at the heart of the eight Beatitudes. You see, the first three Beatitudes, they point to the depths of man's neediness. 
specifically, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, right? And if Jesus were to tweet that out, I mean, or if he were to say that, it would point back to how can we be spiritually blessed by God? Now, in verse 6 through 9, a solution is given for man's greatest needs. And in these verses, we see his greatest needs. So in verse 6, I'm, I'm actually going to give kind of an overview. If I were to give a kind of a point-by-point point through this, all those point-takers, I would say first, King Jesus satisfies. Then King Jesus forgives. Next, King Jesus cleanses. And then finally, King Jesus commissions. All right? Let's look at first how King Jesus satisfies. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, that, he says this, If this verse is to you one of the blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. Wow. Powerful, powerful words by Dr. Lloyd-Jones because this verse tells us the solution to what man is longing for. Man's greatest need is to be satisfied. And it's found in King Jesus. Now, don't let that pass you by. Somebody today needs to open their ears and open their heart and cling to this verse. Because you've been in pursuit of happiness, but you have not been able to obtain it. You, you, you've wanted to be blessed through your bank account or through power or possessions or through prestige or other vices. Or even good things like education and degrees and marriage and your children, personal piety, Christian conferences, podcasts, even listening to sermons or even reading your Bible. But verse 6 tells us not to put happiness or experiences or stuff first in our pursuit of being satisfied. Righteousness must come first. And I, I want to pause for one moment, too, because throughout the sermon to this point, you've, you've probably heard me refer to King Jesus several times, right? Last night, as was mentioned, we had a men's fellowship, uh, and it was a rich, rich time. I believe there were, Jason, how many guys did we have? Fifty. 56 guys. The first time it was 30-something? 42. Rich time of fellowship. And it's interesting. One of the questions that was asked of the men, because ladies, I know you want to know what we were talking about. And we were actually told to tell you what we were talking about. I'm telling on the guys right now. We need to show you the papers in which we went through. All right, guys are mad at me now. Some of y'all, look, look, I got the hands in there like, games. come on, man. It's supposed to be the men's time. Ladies, you would be glad to know that some of your husbands were eating vegetables, okay? But last night, uh, as men, we gathered, and one of the questions that was asked was, who do you pledge your allegiance to? And I was struck by that question. And for you, you need to understand, Jesus is king. He's, in fact, king of kings. And Lord of Lords, in Revelation 19, 16, on his, on his robe and on his thigh, he has written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the real king of a real kingdom. 
The great king, though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty, those who believe in him may be rich. And he did this by dying on the cross for our sins. And then he rose eternally triumphed over sin, over death, over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. And we call that the gospel. And as Christians, we get excited about that. Amen? If you don't know King Jesus, repent, believe, and put your faith in King Jesus. King Jesus says, you are blessed if you hunger and thirst after him. Shane, we need to pursue King Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Often I, and I know there's others out there like me, we want to jump to the things that God provides without pursuing him. We, we want his stuff. Particularly, we don't want to pursue righteousness. And it is true that God is the source of all good things. Please hear me say that. Don't hear me. Hear James. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom no variableness, neither shadow of turning. But don't forget, righteousness must come first. Now, I have to explain this. What is righteousness that we must be in this intense pursuit of? Well, Scripture speaks of righteousness in several different ways. Um, For those note takers, the first way is positional righteousness, which is the sovereign act of uh, by God, which he declares sinners righteous through faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is incredible that a people, this is mind-boggling, that a people who were not in pursuit of God can have their hearts changed by God, and then God bring them to a saving knowledge of himself, a saving faith of himself, and then be made right in standing with God. That has nothing to do with them. That's glorious. That's glorious for the sinner like me that God can do these steps and make me righteous before him. Incredible. Then there's social righteousness, which involves caring for widows and orphans, providing for their needs and seeking justice for those uh, who are less fortunate, providing providing justice for those who have been wronged. Now, this, too, is extremely important in our day. Areas like criminal justice, school reform, health care reform, government policies. All this is important for us to pursue these social righteousness, social justices, in order to have a visible gospel witness in our, in our neighborhoods, in our country, and in our world. Social righteousness involves compassion for those who have who've offended us. Uh-oh. Or those who are less fortunate than us. We need to extend that type of righteousness to others. King Jesus is talking about that social righteousness here. He's talking about that positional. But this other type of righteousness is personal or even progressive righteousness. He's, he's speaking to those who have been justified by God through faith in King Jesus. And then the person demonstrates righteous standing by a sincere and strong desire to have their life being conformed to a righteous position before King Jesus. 
Positional righteousness. King Jesus blesses this type of righteousness, tells us to pursue this type of righteousness. It's important that we, in our pursuit, don't take it casually, though. We can do that, right, as church folk? In a dignified way, I'm pursuing righteousness. Look at me and look at me. That's my righteousness voice. Or move, or move toward righteousness when it's convenient. No, for us. No, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Like their life depends on it. Now, this is probably a hard concept for many of us to understand in our, with our Western mindset, right? Because we, we have a refrigerator, we have food, we have a pantry that has extra food, we have a snack drawer that has food. We have a cheat drawer with like last year's Halloween candy with more food. <laughs> Some of us may not have food. I don't think we have food in our refrigerator right now. <laughs> we got to go shopping. <laughs> but there's, there's this need for us to pursue. See, the, let's go back to the context. This audience that's following Jesus, they would be well acquainted with intense hunger, starvation, being thirsty, being, uh, having blisters over their lips. They would know what it feels like to be thirsty in a desert country where the sun would beat down on them all day without a water fountain in sight, an Aquafina bottle, a, a, a Wawa in sight. There's no Wawa. Something we take for granted. I know with, with my kids, we take water for granted. Turning it on, turning it off. Many countries around the world, they don't have that luxury. Yet these people are, who are following Jesus, they understand it because they weren't the nobles. They weren't the scribes. They weren't the Sadducees or the Pharisees. These were people who were familiar companions with thirst and hunger. And King Jesus is saying to them, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, you must be, you must be desperate about your wanting this righteousness. You have to, and this righteousness is himself. He's pointing to himself. He's saying, I will satisfy you. If you come to me, I will fill you. If you are hungry, if you, if you are hungry and you thirst for King Jesus, he will fill you with happiness. Someone, someone today needs to hear that afresh, that King Jesus satisfies. Because you've been chasing so many other things. And you've been doing it in a way that many people may not even know it. And, and, and you've been trying to obtain this longing, this satisfaction, but hear King Jesus' voice right here. He says, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you, King Jesus says. Now, if anyone um, has been around my family for any length of time, I have a three-year-old. She just turned three on Monday, Adonaya. We love Adonaya. Um, uh, but you know what? People would think that we don't feed her um, because she's always saying, I'm hungry. That's her voice, literally. I'm as cuter than mine. Um, I'm hungry. Daddy, I'm hungry. Adonai, we, we literally just ate. This morning, gave her like two, three waffles, right? She saw her siblings eating. What did she say? I'm hungry. I'm like, my goodness, somebody, somebody's going to report me, you know, like call our pediatrician or DHS or somebody and tell them I'm like, my daughter's malnourished. <laughs> but Ad and Adonai, again, says it again today, this morning for breakfast, and it cut me to the core. And I, I said to myself, man, is my soul saying the same thing? 
Joel, I'm hungry. I'm not blessed. I'm not happy because I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually malnourished. Give me Jesus. Give me righteousness. Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to be filled? Well, you have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Be like David in Psalm 42.1 where he, where he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants, so longs my soul for you, O God. We sing that song, and it's a pretty song. Sometimes we sing, no, that's an agonizing song. King Jesus, let me tell you, he guarantees satisfaction. In this life, many things, people, pursuits, claim to satisfy, but only King Jesus satisfies. King Jesus is the, has all authority, and he tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. First point, King Jesus satisfied. Then King Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, look at verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, uh, uh, Mike, I'm not a rapper, all right? Mike Ryan, if you want to hear some, some, inc- some dope lyrics, oh, let me contextualize. If you want to hear some incredible um, uh, lyrical music, um, <laughs> listen to my brother Mike Ryan, YouTube him. He's like, literally, he encourages my soul every time he puts something out. So I'm not a rapper, Mike, so don't judge me, all right? But I, one of my brothers, Timothy Brindle, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, and he, he makes this distinction between grace and mercy, which are often used simultaneously. And he explains this on another one of my brothers, Shy Lin's lyrical theology album, which is entitled The Attributes of God. We recommend you download it. If your kids need good, good music, The Attributes of God, Shy Lin, download it. So, Mike, here's my attempt. All right, brother? Let's put it up on the screen. Okay. He says this. In mercy, Christ saw our wretched condition, but instead of giving us death for our sinning, in grace, his blood paid the debt that's infinite, now resurrected with Christ and blessed because we're in him. Mercy, Christ turned the Father's anger. Grace, Christ earned us all his favor. And since Christ... Uh Uh-oh, see, I'm choking already. And since Christ kept the precepts of the law because of his perfection, we're accepted by God. Real righteousness he gladly gives us. Hunger and thirst after it. Real righteousness he gladly gives us. The Father happily lavishes this. Instead of filthy rags, our dad's forgiveness, the ultimate story of rags to riches. Incredible, incredible way to explain mercy. Mercy... Simply put, is getting what we don't deserve. One illustration of this in in Scripture, Luke 10, you know it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have a man going on a road, he's beat up by, by these men, and he's left for dead. And who comes by? A priest. And the priest actually crosses the street, the Scripture says, right? Then you have the Levite that comes. And they don't tend to the traveler's needs. And then you have the Samaritan who comes, and, and he tends to the man's needs, puts him up in a hotel, pays his bill, right? Goes above and beyond, but it's interesting because Jesus is asked, which one of the, he asked, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who was attacked? 
And in verse 37 of Luke 10, Jesus said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In the parable, there's an expectation to show mercy. Mercy is grace in action. And our God is merciful. And he shows mercy continuously. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it. God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. And so, the citizens of God's kingdom must show mercy too. According to, to King Jesus, those who have experienced God's mercy, mercy should show mercy as a requirement. We, we, we should do that. that. We should be known by that. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? Or the King James says, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sister Becky, mercy is closely related to forgiveness. Mercy is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from others' perspective and is not quick to take offense or gloat over others' shortcomings. It shows kindness to those who offend and toward those who are in need. Now, here's the reality. Mercy is costly. It's costly. Those who show mercy, though, find it themselves. Again, it's very closely linked to forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 says, For if you forgive others in their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. When we think of mercy, we, we must think of the cross of King Jesus. For at the cross, God acted with grace and mercy to sinful man. The cross moves us to forgive when we think of all that we have been forgiven. See, mercy is difficult when we have ourselves as the standard, right? When we look at ourselves and say, look at, look at how I am. However, when we look to King Jesus' compassion towards us and his ultimate demonstration of mercy on the cross, it compels us to show mercy to others. In the text, mercy speaks not of how people will respond to the merciful person, but of how God will deal with those who live by his standard. Remember, the verse says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I want to share this point as well. So my wife always gets on me because when I preach, I often sing. I can't sing at all, but I don't know what the Lord does. Gives this unction that I think I can sing. I'm not going to do it, love. She's shaking her head. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to sing. But there was a song that I would listen to often in college. In fact, it was, I remember going over Rick Butler's apartment, and we listened to this song, this CD, Donnie McClurkin CD, right? I don't know if you remember that, brother. But we would listen to this song, and one of his songs was, uh, it was called Great Is Your Mercy. Great Mercy was the name of it. I'm not going to sing. I feel it. Come on, let me. No? No, I'm not going to do it. Here, 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 here's the lyrics. <laughs> Great is your mercy towards me. Your loving kindness. I see some people shaking. You know this song. Your loving kindness towards me. Your tender mercy I see day after day. 
I can't. Don't get me in trouble, brother. I got to go home with her, brother. Don't get me in trouble. Forever faithful towards me, always providing for me. Great is your mercy towards me. Great is your grace. I love that song. I remember listening to that song over and over and over again. I listened to it today. However, that song, as much as I love it, it falls short. Because it doesn't explain what the response should be when mercy, when you receive mercy. If you look at the words, great is your mercy towards me, your loving kindness towards me, your tender mercy I see, day after day forever faithful towards me, always providing for me, great is your mercy towards me, great is your grace. That's good. That's good. But it should cause us to show mercy to others. It should cause us to show mercy to fellow sinners. Husbands, I should hear you right now. Husbands, we need mercy. Amen? Amen. That was not robust, fellas. Husbands, we need mercy. Amen? Amen. Okay. Wives, you need mercy. Children need mercy. The boss who's annoying you needs mercy. Our neighbor who's next door to you, who you're not getting along, we have to extend mercy to them. Your friends, your co-worker, our pastors. We need to show mercy so that we can receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. King Jesus satisfies. King Jesus forgives. Next, King Jesus cleanses. Look at verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this beatitude for me creates a sense of sadness and happiness at the same time. Uh, I'm not sure if you're, because uh, I'm, I'm very aware that my heart is physically and spiritually is busted. <laughs> it's busted. This past December, um, I, I was experiencing horrible heart pain after a grace and race meeting that we had. And uh, Tia called our family doctor um, who urged me to go to the ER. And like a knucklehead, I didn't go. Uh, <laughs> I went the next morning to my family doctor who sent me down to the cardiologist downstairs who looked at my chart and was like, whoa, what is going on? Now for me, I was experiencing this pain. Interestingly enough, when they started running tests, the pain that I was experiencing had nothing to do with what they found was a heart condition. It was as if God was pressing right on the area that they wanted, that where the pain, where the heart condition was, and he was pushing there so that the doctors could find exactly what was going on inside. Amen. Tia, we, we, were, we were astonished of God's sovereignty for me to find out my heart condition. And and it wasn't until I found out that I had a bad heart when I was able to get potentially life-saving surgery for my heart. So I currently have a defibrillator in. And I was able to, because I found out about the heart condition, make mature and informed and wise decisions when I found out how bad my heart really was. Philip Yancey said said it well. He said, the proof Follow me on this. The proof of spiritual maturity is not how pure you are, 
but an awareness of your impurity. The very awareness opens the door to grace. I experienced that grace because I then realized how bad my heart condition was. The state of all of our hearts reveals there's a problem at our core. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Matthew 15.19 says, Out of the heart proceeds evil, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, and false witness, blasphemies. So the natural question would be, how can anyone have a, a pure heart? Answer, only King Jesus can cleanse your heart. When you cry out like David does, you remember in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God is faithful to answer those prayers. Those who cry out out of the core of their being, he answers those prayers. And remember, Corey, remember what was happening during that time. David is crying out to God because he's fully aware of his sinfulness, Right? Fully aware. He, he came to the end of himself and is crying out to the one who can cleanse him. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 says this. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who, can, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. David here is describing an inner purity. In other words, he has an undivided heart, a, a pure heart, and he's able to then see God. And it's a process of committing your heart to the will of the Lord. This beatitude in particular, it cut me at the core because King Jesus is saying every area of your life should be in pursuit of purity. And we can deceive ourselves, right? I can deceive myself in, into thinking that personal, uh, that purity is in the areas that man can evaluate. Similar to the rich young ruler. You remember in Mark 10, right? Runs up to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man says, I've done all this, teacher. I've done all this. I've kept this all since my youth. Then Jesus says what? Sell all you have, give it to the poor, verse 17, and follow me. What happened? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. King Jesus contrasts the type of external purity or justice that is seen in, that, in, in Jewish tradition, really in our culture today, this pursuit of, of I want to look good. King Jesus says, no, I don't want anyone to walk away like the rich young ruler sad. But instead, I want you to be blessed and happy because just like in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who finds refuge in him, not in their stuff, not on the external purity, but what is inside. Find refuge in Christ. And here's the question. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good recently? Do you pursue King Jesus with your whole heart regularly? It's a hard question to wrestle with. I would encourage you to experience 
the cleansing of Christ through repentance daily. He wants you to see him. He wants you to be blessed. Pursue Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wrapping up right now. King Jesus satisfies. King Jesus forgives. King Jesus cleanses. Finally, King Jesus commissions. Verse 9, take a look at it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Everybody say shalom. Now, that's often used as a greeting, right? Um, but it's such a richer word. It's, it's the idea of extending health or wholeness or well-being to another person or a people group. Sinclair Ferguson, he notes that shalom could also be translated salvation. And those who make peace are those who earnestly seek the shalom, the salvation of mankind. Just like blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, those who have tasted, who have seen, who have experienced this shalom from God must be peacemakers. Brother Darrell, not just peacekeepers. You know the difference. A peacekeeper is one who does, who does everything to avoid conflict. They don't, they don't want to rock the boat, right? A peacekeeper is like a, a thermometer. They change to the environment they're in. Whereas a peacemaker is like a thermostat. They can change the temperature of the environment. Of the environment. A peacemaker changes the conversation when, let's get real for a moment, when someone comes uh, with, a, uh, with some gossip, the peacemaker points people to gospel truth. A peacemaker goes towards the conflict and humbly and gently and respectfully but directly deals with the problem. They help people see the complexities of the problem, but they point them to the power of the gospel. They help apply God's truth to life's circumstances with grace and love. A peacemaker goes to God to ask for wisdom first before they open up their mouth. Peacemaker. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called sons and daughters of God when we are peacemakers. And King Jesus is the one who can do this, this divine work through people. And how can he do this? Because he's the author of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And it's worth noting here that the devil is the opposite of peace. Often in my marriage, T and I, if we're at odds with each other, and we, we can tell that this is like the influence of some spiritual warfare going on, right? We, we'll say out loud. We'll, we'll, we'll remind the devil of, of, of it, you won't have dominion in our home. See, Satan hates, the devil hates marriages. Why? Because it's the picture of Christ and his bride. So he'll come and try to bring confusion, and we remind him what it says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. And we say, God, we need your grace right now because we're at odds with each other. We need your grace, Lord Jesus. Please come bring your grace now. We need your peace. Some of you in your marriages right now need to be crying that out to God. Bring peace. John Stott reminds us that it is the devil who is a troublemaker. And it's God who loves reconciliation. And 
who now through his children are formally, as formally through his only begotten son, is bent on making peace. So to be blessed, we must seek to do what King Jesus has done. He's extended peace and love to the people, to people. Where would you find yourself? On the side of confusion or on the side of peace? Do you entertain confusion, trouble, gossip, slander, drama? Or do you point people to the peace, to the salvation of the Lord Jesus? One of my favorite books in the Bible is, uh, is Ephesians. Uh, and it explains in chapter 2, for uh, 2.14, it says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, sons and daughters of God, we have been commissioned to extend this peace to the world around us. These beatitudes that we're going to be finishing up next week, it, it gives us a picture of how we are to be blessed. How can we be blessed? We ultimately pursue, we meditate, we learn from, we taste, we see, we chase, we hunger, we thirst after the person, the God-man, King Jesus. And we share his gospel truth. For only King Jesus satisfies. King Jesus forgives. King Jesus cleanses us. And then King Jesus commissions us. Another group of men heard this same commission directly from the mouth of King Jesus. And it's found at the end of this book, Matthew, the Great Commission. It says in 28, Matthew 28, 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, interesting, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. If you're a a Christian today, this is our commission as well. People often ask, why doesn't God do something about the lack of peace in the world? Well, we Christians have been commissioned to bring that peace. We have the privilege, the responsibility to share the gospel and to be peacemakers in our homes, in our workplace, in our community groups. Every sphere of influence that we have, we should be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. The question is, are you blessed? If you are, this week, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven.
Amen.